As we make our way through the book of Mark, I trust it has been actually enjoyable. You enjoy opening the Bible up and going through a particular book of the Bible. And this uh, book of Mark has been uh, been a treat. And I want to tell you something. We're actually coming to the apex, very focal point of what this uh, book of Mark is about as we are in the... Uh, end of Mark 8 or somewhere thereabouts. Um, The reason I say that is everything that we have seen before is really pointing to this. It's it's leading up to this point of where we're at right now. That's why it's so good to figure out where we're at. And everything that's before us is going to flow right out of where we're at today. So this is the apex. This is where it all meets. This is where the disciples, namely Peter, but the rest of them too, confess that Jesus is the Messiah and that He is the Son of God. Uh, they know Jesus is in fact the Messiah and that's what people have been looking for for centuries and centuries and centuries, right? They have been looking for this Messiah. And now you are convinced in your own mind that He really is the Messiah. This is the one they were talking about. A lot of other people are saying a lot of other things. But when you're talking about the Messiah, you're thinking the Kingdom Age. They're thinking, okay, this is deliverance from our enemies, deliverance from the Roman Empire. Uh, We're talking about glory coming here. We're talking about all joy, all peace, all blessing, prosperity. The earth will change. Uh, The nation of Israel will be the most powerful and prominent nation on the face of the earth. Messiah reigning. Think of all that joy, all the blessing that this brings. And there He is. And of course, they have finally come to that culmination. This is the greatest revelation that could ever come. The Messiah is here. So what an apex it is as they understand the person of Jesus. But there's a problem because there's a plan that Jesus has. They understand the person now of Jesus, but they don't understand His plan. So therefore, they still will be confused He's going to have to suffer. He's going to have to die. And that's what he's going to say here in this passage today. They were ready for the kingdom to start now. And that would be great. But it wasn't that time. But Peter does make the great confession. And because of this great confession, Jesus brings on the news that he will die. Now, that's like coming down from the highest mountain peak that you could be on and going down to the very lowest of the valley. And, you know, Peter just can't handle that. So, it is with natural man as far as understanding things. They affirm the person of Christ or the Messiah, but they deny the plan. It just doesn't make sense. The natural man cannot understand the deep things of God. Even though these things seem simple and we could figure it out on our own mind and our own thinking, that is not true at all. Nobody would have ever come to the conclusion that He is the Messiah unless He revealed it to them. And uh, that's worth noting. So today, as we, as we sit here, stand here, we're on the other side of the cross. We can look at that and to us it makes perfect sense. 
We were convinced of that very early on. But to the people before the cross, and I want you to put yourself into their place, even though you're looking for the Messiah, and they understand the Messiah. I mean, that whole idea, that concept is definitely there. But in the Old Testament, you get some revelation there. You get quite a bit, but it's something what we would call concealed. And in the New Testament, it becomes revealed. Right? And we're on the other side of that, so we must remember that we too would not have gotten it at that moment. Uh, I think we certainly have an advantage, don't we, in uh, this time that we live in uh, before the believers on before the, the cross. But for the disciples there, you know, they, they walked and lived with Jesus every day. They uh, ate with Him and uh, they were together just constantly. But they're just understanding a little bit at a time. Now that takes us back just a little bit to last week. Do you remember we closed out with the blind man? And there was a reason why Jesus held out on that miracle and bringing it to its very completion. Uh, In that blind man, he has two portions of, of the miracle. He doesn't see clearly at first. It kind of takes back to the disciples before. They weren't doing that right as Jesus was explaining about um, the leaven of the Pharisees and they were wondering and worrying about their bread. Remember? The physical bread. And so and then we had the blind man story. And so here we are again today and it shows that they're still not getting it entirely even though now they take it up another step and uh, now they see this Messiahship in a bigger way than ever. So that illustration there is very helpful that, that we get as we go through a book. You can see how it all ties together. And uh, we see in a mirror dimly ourselves, don't we? We don't see it all. We don't know what is... We know there is a kingdom that, that's going to come. And we know there's glory. And we know a lot of details. But we don't know when that is. Right? There are a lot of things we don't know about it. We can just speculate. We see in a mirror dimly. But one day we will see perfectly. Just like the blind man. He saw dimly or not clearly, and then all of a sudden he saw perfectly. 2020 vision. So do the disciples on the other side of the cross with the Holy Spirit and all the revelation that they get there. And uh, so uh, what we're going to look at today is that Peter gets a great revelation from God, makes the supreme great confession that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and then he is later rebuked by Jesus for his thinking on man's interest rather than God's interest. And how often that happens with us. Let's go into the very Word of God. Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. Jesus went out along with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He questioned His disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told Him, saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And He continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word, may we lose sight of the, the messenger here today, the speaker, that we'd be engaged and gripped and just changed by your message. Rivet our minds uh, on Jesus and what He's doing here and what He wants us to do. In the Son's name, amen. amen. Okay, you guys ready to go to school? It's school time, isn't it? It's getting close to that. Well, we're going to take an exam right off the bat. You ever had a test on day one? <laughs> um, this school is going to be Caesarea Philippi. And... I am going to have some visuals here to kind of help us. It's going to show us a little bit of where he's going to take these disciples. Now, they, uh, on, this is an idolatrous area where he's taking them to, basically a Gentile area. They're making the journey uh, actually from the Sea of Galilee, which is North Galilee, and they're going to go up 25 miles further up north. Beautiful territory. It's kind of like a park. You ever gone out on a park on a Sunday with the the family and you take cameras and stuff and you just kind of goof around and what a cool place. And a lot of people just milling around and checking it out. You can see a waterfall there. You can see a river. Uh, You can see a cliff. You can see even what looks like a cave. And we'll show some more pictures and get a little bit uh, more into this. But uh, there's, there's the cave that we're talking about. Jesus is probably walking them by this area at some time or another. And, uh, of course, the, the, the surroundings are great. What a great teaching place. That's a great school, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And they're going to learn from Him. They have been learning all along on, on the great outdoors. And, uh, you know, there have been miracles, right? There have been great miracles that have happened. And Jesus leaves the town where they have been. And actually, the apostles were from there, or at least a few of them, three of them, I think, were fishermen, were originally from Bethsaida. Okay? And so, He leaves. They leave with Him. There's no need to do any miracles there. The people have have seen enough, and most of them don't get it. And so, He gets alone with the disciples, takes them into this area. This is what he has in mind. And it's Caesarea Philippi. And some of you might remember the city Dan or the, the tribe of Dan, which was all the way up into this area. And it was really kind of part of Israel, but anymore it's really Caesarea Philippi. Very, very Gentile. Very much of a Roman-type city uh, named after the Caesar and, of course, uh, Philip. And so here we go. And this is the farthest... Uh, northern part of Israel. I'm going to have Zach take it back to we have we have those grottoes. You see those grottoes up there um, on the cliff. This area, right in there, and it's right in this area, right in here. And here's the cave. Well, those those grottoes are dealing with pagan gods. One of them is really was a big 
name God for those people back there, and the name was Pan. Remember, we're in a Gentile area, a Gentile territory. So as Jesus is taking them there, this is where Peter is going to do his great confession. You have idols there that are what? Dead idols. They're not living. They're dead gods. They're, they're mankind making of gods and how ridiculous that is. But the historic pagans had worshipped Pan. At this time, most of the people are worshipping Caesar, you know, the man god. But they had other gods too and these pagans. Pan is the one who was a mythological god and he, um, he was half man, half goat. Remember that? And he played a flute. Have you seen pictures of that? And uh, so that's, that's what's happening here. So there's a shrine to the, celebrate this Panius, uh, mythical deity. And then, Zach, I'm going to have you take it to that, that cave again. And that is considered to be the mouth to Hades, or the entrance to Hades, or the gates of Hades. Hades is the place of the dead. And so in their mythological ideas, they had their ideas of life and death and they had their own gods. Sometimes it kind of runs parallel with the truth of Scripture, but we know it's way off though also. But it will take some things and try to um, parallel that. So imagine that and um, as we get into that um, text where Peter makes the confession, we'll, we'll bring that out a little bit more, bring that back and uh, try to try to see what's happening there. So they've been walking all around the suburbs. It says villages there or suburbs of Caesarea Philippi. Um, This is a pretty interesting place. And it's a good place just to kind of relax, take it easy, enjoy the sights, the scenes. And as we look at sights and scenes uh, when we travel, sometimes we'll hear, especially if you go to a public place that has historic significance, they will tell you how many billions and billions of years that was uh, that came into being. And they won't mention God. They won't mention creation. And you get all uh, of that kind of stuff. So when you go into the secular pagan world, there are different stories going on out there, aren't there? But God created this area, you know. And the, the waterfalls, the, the, all the greenery and the beauty that's there, and even the cave. And, of course, mankind takes it and goes places with it that it's not supposed to be. So you have a mortal deity uh, in Caesar Augustus, and then you have this pan. This is the backdrop. This is where the most important questions uh, will come from. That's the first question. You know what? I like these kind of tests, too. How many questions are there? Two. I like that. Two questions. You might remember that uh, Jesus had just fed the crowd of the thousands, the 4,000 plus, right? Disciples can't forget that. But sometimes they kind of do. (laughs) They've kind of forgotten the 5,000, even though that was in their mind. They just can't put it together. They had experienced the storm and his great miracles there of stilling the storm and raising the dead. I mean, look at the experiences that they have. We have one more last stretch that we're going to go into of Jesus' time and his ministry. And so he asked this question Who do they say I am? What's the word out on the streets, guys? What's happening out there? What are they saying about me? 
Now, it's not that he's stuck on himself and he has some kind of a big ego, but the fact of the matter is is he wants it for their own good. What, what, what are they saying? What are you saying? You know what? Everybody on earth who's ever been born, who's ever lived here, is accountable to God. All accountable to God. If they come up with the wrong answer, where are they going to go? They're going to go to hell. All right. For eternity. Common people have answers. You might ask them, what happens after this? Some of them say, is dying, that's it. Others have some kind of ethereal heaven in their own mind of what it is. They have one story after another. Then you have philosophers that have the answers and pseudo-philosophers and pseudo-scholars and liberal theologians have their ideas of what's going to happen. Muslims have their answer. All the Eastern religions and the cults and the occult, the secularist and the atheist and all the uh, people out there that uh, within the last few years um, they had a seminar uh, one called the Jesus Seminar. And they were trying to discover the historical Jesus really without Scripture. We have the answer right here. The answer is in, in the Scripture. So, Jesus asked the question and they come up with probably, first of all, the one who would be the most popular and they're saying John the Baptist. And uh, that had gotten around quite um, quite a lot. He was one who preached repentance and he was one who... Uh, of course, had a huge following like Jesus did. People just came from all over and met him out in the wilderness. And of course, Herod knew of John the Baptist, quite intrigued by him. And he thought that this man that's walking around as Jesus is John the Baptist that's come back. And it's kind of haunting to him. But uh, that's one. And another one is Elijah. They're saying that's Elijah. Well... Before the day of the Lord, Elijah was supposed to come back. Now, a real Jew is thinking, okay, I've seen him, I've seen his miracles. This is not the Messiah. It can't be the Messiah. He doesn't look like it. He's not doing the things that he's supposed to be doing. He's not taking over the Roman Empire. He is not dominating in that sense. So, he's somebody important. And even uh, Nicodemus said, we know that you... You come from God. He just didn't put it together who he really was. But this Elijah, just before the time of the Messiah, a great Old Testament prophet, go back to Malachi in the Old Testament. The very last book is Malachi. Chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So Elijah is going to come back. Well, John the Baptist, before Christ came back, was a good picture of Elijah. So, they would be looking for this Elijah and see how they kind of put them together. Uh, or they say he's one of the prophets of God. Elijah was a strong prophet of God, wasn't he? They're really thinking 
Elijah, John the Baptist, it's a prophet, it's Jeremiah. Now in Matthew 16, that's our parallel chapter that goes along with our Mark 8 here. And we'll be referring to that ever so often. You'd wonder, well, it's kind of interesting they pulled Jeremiah out of the hat. Why, why are they bringing him forth? Kind of bizarre tradition that the Jews had. And they anticipated way back then when Jeremiah did this prophecy, he anticipated and God had told him that the Babylonian captivity is going to happen. And of course it did. And what Jeremiah was going to do, now this is in folklore uh, as far as the Jews are concerned. This is the story. He went to the temple. You won't find this in Scripture. Okay, in our Scripture. Went to the temple, took the altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant, then went up north to Mount Nebo and hid it there. And when Jeremiah comes back just before the Messiah does, he's going to get that altar of incense. He's going to get the Ark, recover that, and the Messiah then would come in His glory. So that's what they're waiting for. Maybe Jeremiah will do that. Now that's, that's a tradition that shows up actually in, in 2 Maccabees. It's an intertestamental apocryphal book. It's not considered inspired. Uh, they were all short of the truth on who Jesus was. They knew Jesus had to be a prophet. They knew He, he just cannot be the Messiah. He cannot. There's no way. Yeah, He's done some great things. Uh, the Messiah is supposed to bring prosperity, right? He was a prosperity teacher the Messiah was going to be. Prosperity and power, that's what He's going to bring. He was going to reign in Israel and dominate the world. The desert would blossom. Well, the desert certainly hasn't been blossoming out there. Well, all the covenants would be fulfilled. The Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant to Jeremiah in chapter 31. So... The messianic concept is definitely developed. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for the Messiah. They're so hungry. And so when they see a man like this, especially even the the disciples and apostles, even though they kind of know who he is at the same time, it's not hitting them right in between the eyes like it should be. But there's a concept. And they just can't get to the point of Jesus being the Messiah of the regular people. He doesn't fit. He's not the military leader. He's not the conqueror. But the Gospels, it says in John 20, were written so people would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. So there's the first question. They answer the question. They say, that's who they're saying. Different ideas, but that's what's going on. So he has a second question. And he makes it personal. But who do you say? that I am. And like we say, again, it's it's not his ego. It's not about, hey, I'm somebody great here. And he is, but he wants them to recognize it and to say it. So, Peter is going to be the one that answers. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Now, in Matthew 16...
Verse 15, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There we go. There's the confession. Now, Mark says it correctly too. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And he probably it probably said, You are the Christ. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know? And he's probably kept saying it over and over. You're the Messiah. The disciples are saying, Yeah, yeah, I knew I knew that. <laughs> and they're they're probably in the background, you know, saying, Yeah, yeah, we, we know that too. But Peter brings it forth. And uh, it's it's brought forth boldly. This is the first time a confession is made in the book of Mark. You are the Christ. You are the Mashiach. Mashiach. Christos. Christ, that you think in the Greek, is Christos, which means anointed. But if we go into the Hebrew, it is Mashiach, which is Messiah or anointed. In the Old Testament, they're, they're equivalent. So, this is uh, really the, the ultimate. Uh, of course, He is Lord. The Anointed One. When you think of anointed, you have to think of the King. He is the King. They, they would anoint a King. There were three offices, of course. You know, the prophet, priest, and king. You'd have the King. A priest would be anointed with that oil to identify that this, this man is anointed by God to be uh, the priest. And a prophet would be anointed with that oil to show that they were legitimate and from God. They identify with that. And so that's what he's saying, which is saying he's the king, he's the prophet, he's the priest. Nobody could have all three of those offices. You could be one or the other. But not all three. But Jesus is the prophet. He's the one who comes proclaiming the very Word of God, doesn't he? He is the priest because He's the one who is the go-between between us and God. He's the mediator. And of course, He is the King who is supreme, who reigns over all. And Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Mashiach, you are the Son of the living God. Now I'll have Zach put that back up again. And as we look around, we see those grottoes and we see the temple there. They had some temples. One of them was to Pan uh, at an earlier time. They, they had those at a different time there. And uh, there were temples in Caesarea Philippi. Of course, they probably had just walked by them. They had seen them. They were familiar with them. And now, as we look at the cliff, we see that they had idolatry going on there for many, many years. Dead gods, not living gods. They never lived. Imagination from humans. But what does Peter say? You are the son of the living God. It's very possible they could be looking right at that, be right in that area. You are the son of the living God. Now that's rather remarkable, isn't it? The living God. And then, then we think that, of course, and we'll keep that on up there for a little bit. Um, back in Matthew 16, we read Peter's confession. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, 
Bar Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, that's the only way he would have known that. Only way that he could have confessed that he really is the Messiah. He said, well, why couldn't the other ones come up with that? Because he hadn't revealed it to them. Or yet, it takes a revelation from God for us to understand what we know to be some of the most basic things of God. But they're only basic to us because they were drilled into us first by the Holy Spirit. We would never recognize it. Why is it that most of the world cannot say that? It hasn't been revealed to them. Or yet. I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And the upper right hand corner, maybe they're standing in that area. I don't know. They don't even have to be in this area, but it sure would make sense as, as they're walking along. Peter's saying that, and there would be what they would know as the gates of Hades. The place of the dead is underneath. That's the entrance of it. And so Jesus says, on this confession, this rock, you are a little rock, but on this big rock, this great confession, which means a big, huge, massive rock, and you remember the cliff that we saw there? That is considered a petra. Peter is a petras, a little stone. And upon this confession, or some other people would say, on Jesus himself, he is the rock. I don't have trouble with either one of them. But it's certainly not on Peter himself that it's built. On this rock. And upon this massive rock. You're, you're a little rock. You're a little stone. But on this massive rock, are you catching it? I will build my church. Folks, that's us. He's still building it. On this massive rock, on this confession of faith that Jesus is the Son of God or on Jesus Himself, that is where we place our faith. So, he says, the gates of Hades will not overpower. Why would he say that? And by the way, that's a defensive element. It's not that the, the gates of Hades or hell or Satan is coming out after us. Well, actually, we are attacked by Satan. But the gates are a defensive element. They're not coming out after the church and trying to rip us down. Well, of course, the enemy and of course whoever would like to do that to the church. But he's talking about as we continue to triumph on as in the power that we've been given through the person of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit with the Word of God... No matter what they throw at us, no matter what they might throw out of that cave, (laughs) they'll never prevail. The church is going to be here. Right? It has never been destroyed. The church has been here for 2,000 years. All the people that are um, belong to Christ. And so, I think as he says that, I think it would be interesting if they were looking at that as Peter's saying, the living God. And then Jesus is saying, even the gates of Hades will not prevail against this church that's on the rock. 
Now that's rather encouraging. He talks about the binding and loosing in Matthew. We won't get to that. Um, we we go back to our Mark passage. And we realize he's more than just a prophet. They're realizing the person. He's just not doing the plan the way that people want it. People have their own idea of the way that the Messiah should be or the way that God should be or the way that He should do things, right? It stumped up a whole nation. stumped up the whole world. It was a stumbling block. The whole idea was, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon. The next thing, he's going to have to be rebuking him almost at the same time. It requires divine intervention to make this confession. Do you guys get that? We could not have done that whatsoever. It was all him. And in John six forty four, we are at the very mercy of God. What a great thing. We praise Him for this. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. And I'll raise Him up on the last day. I guarantee you. If you're, if you're given from the Father to the Son... He will be kept. And we can't come to the Father unless we're brought to Him. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, somebody could mouth those words, Jesus is Lord, and not be a Christian. We know that. But we're talking about one who truly knows it in his heart by the Holy Spirit has told him and by the truth of the Word of God here. Jesus is Lord only comes from those who have been revealed that. They know it. They mean it. They know what it's about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this is one of my favorite passages. We'll just go to that. Starting at verse 10. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That is where it comes from. 
The only reason we have any kind of knowledge about who God is, like being the one who died for our sins and really knowing that, it was revealed to us. Verse 14, this is the opposite side, and this is where we were at. But a natural man, a fleshly man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He can't accept them. He does not accept them. For they're foolishness to him. A man who is an unbeliever, a reprobate, the words of God are foolishness. And he will not hear it. He may play along with it for a while, but it's absolute foolishness. He cannot understand them. Do you get that? He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And then he comes back. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Wow. Really. That's amazing. We can start thinking like Christ. But you remember the blind man? You remember the disciples? We don't get everything that is revealed. And we have the Bible and the Holy Spirit here. We get a lot of it, but there is so much more. But it's great to know those seemingly basic things, the things that nobody can get unless He reveals it to us. That's right out of 1 Corinthians. That's incredible. How about Matthew chapter 11, verse 27? What a blessing. Isn't it a blessing to know that we can think the things of God when we could not have before? We could not understand. We didn't want to. It was absolute foolishness. 11.27 All things have been handed over to me, Jesus says, by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Whoa. Whoever the Son wills will be revealed this special truth. Incredible, isn't it? I'm blown away by it. Every time I think on those passages. So, the revelation from God as to who Jesus is. Peter says it with his mouth. Go back to our mark. Gives him a warning. Remember the miracles of blind man and other people? And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Or the deaf man, don't tell anybody. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Why? Because they don't understand fully the plan. It, it's not done yet. It's not the full message. He doesn't want his miracles to be spread around so that people would become coming to the miracle worker. That was what was really happening. He's a Messiah. But just being the Messiah and saying that He is Lord is not the full message even. And so why not? If we could go around just telling people that Jesus is Lord and won't you believe in Him, it, it's still lacking. 
It's lacking. What's it lacking? It's not the full message because it's missing the gospel. We must tell the gospel. That's the reason that we are here. That's the reason the church meets together. That's the reason the church is the church because of that gospel. Don't tell anyone you've got more to learn. <laughs> you think you're ready? Hold on. Now they have been out, you know, talking about the kingdom and such. But now, as they uh, kind of plod along, this last time, he's going to start teaching them a theme. And here's where it starts. You ready? Verse 31 of Mark 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's usually what he liked to refer to, he is the Son of Man. That's still considered to be Son of God, but he was the one who relates to mankind. So he's Son of God. Son of Man is referred to much in the book of Daniel and throughout the Old Testament. And he says the Son of Man must, must suffer many things be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Boy, gives the warning. And then he starts giving the prediction here. And uh, I guess this prediction is really making them wonder, what? What are you saying? In chapter 9, verse 31... Remember, that's where he began saying that. In chapter 9, the very next chapter, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So that's the next chapter. They still don't get it. Go to chapter 10. The next chapter, verse 33, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. We're aliyat. Direction-wise, you might be heading south and you say, I'm going down south, but what they spoke about, they're heading up the mountain. The elevation is going up. Jerusalem is lifted up. Aliyat. Going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him again, and three days later he will rise again. That's so basic to us, and we've heard this many, many times. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. In Mark chapter 10, then we finally get the reason why He has to die. Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And here we go. To give His life a ransom for many. He's going to pay for their sins. He's going to pay. He didn't come here to be served, He came to serve. When we come to church, do we come to be served? 
Or are we in church to serve? We're here to worship God. We're here to learn who He is and learn how to serve. Jesus is the example. He served to the point of death so that He could pay for the sins. Jesus paid it all. You know that hymn? Jesus paid it all. If He paid it all, that means there's no more payment to be made. It's been done. The payment has been done. There's nothing else left to do. The work is finished. And He paid for the many. The ones who He had to pay for the sins, they are released from their bondage. Of course, at the point whenever we trust in Christ, that happens, but that payment has been. Suffer. Why suffer? Why not a triumphant Messiah? He must suffer, he says. I must suffer. If he doesn't suffer and then die, we have no forgiveness. And we sit here... uh, as fools wasting our time but we have forgiveness and we know that he, when he comes back he is the triumphant Messiah and he meets all the Old Testament passages and all those come together the, uh, the people that were going to kill him uh, you think of the ruling council of Judaism they were the elite the 70 the Sanhedrin the Sadducees the religious liberals the Pharisees the scribes Sadducees, other important leaders in the community, all of the the above, almost all of them, they were the ones seeking to kill Him. How could anybody ever process this? And then He says, Arise. Three days and rise again. They must not have heard this whenever He said, I must die, I must be killed, I must, be, I must suffer and die. And then He says, rise again. I think they heard about the suffering and dying and that's it. This rising again thing, which they've seen miracles where people have come back to life, resuscitations. How does this match with the Old Testament prophecies though? Isaiah 9, they knew, wonderful counselor, mighty God. I mean, you know, he is the king there in Isaiah 9. Boy, that, I mean, that just stands out there, and I'm sure they're thinking in their mind, Isaiah 9, wait a minute, wait a minute, suffer, die. King, almighty, almighty God. How does that work? Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, one of the greatest passages in all the Bible, and it explains the whole thing. The suffering servant there. And um, in verse 10 it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied, he will see it. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, the many, so be ransomed, as he will bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. We get the Gospel in that. If you were to back up to verse 9, it talks about his grave. Verse 8, being cut off out of the land of the living. But he's dying for our sins. And then the resurrection, he will see... He will see his offspring come back to life. There it is, but it's kind of hard to see. If you look in Psalm 16, the same kind of thing there. I think we had that read earlier this morning. In the New Testament, it is kind of summed up in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We preach the Gospel here, right? You guys preach the Gospel, right? He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Simple to us, isn't it? To try to say that 2,000 years ago. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The great exchange. Our sin is put on Him, on Christ, and then His righteousness is put on us. There he takes that sin, takes it to the cross. We're preaching at the very heart of the Gospel here this morning. And uh, so you can see why Jesus would say, I must suffer and I must be at the hands of these people and die. This is the plan. But I don't really like that. Right? They've got to be thinking that. And so we go back to, uh, to our Mark passage. Mark 8. Matter of fact, verse 32. And he, Jesus, was stating the matter plainly. What else do you want? He made it very clear. And here's what you have to be <laughs> And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now remember. Jesus had taken a deaf man aside. Jesus had taken a blind man aside to get away from the crowds and everything. And Peter, you can imagine, he just takes him by the arm and brings him over here and he starts waving that finger at him. Can you imagine that? He's going to correct God. He's just stated that He's the Messiah. And he says this, Peter is now going to explain the Old Testament to Jesus. Jesus is all over the Old Testament, isn't He? Jesus wrote the Old Testament. He is the Word of God. He's just going to help Jesus out a little bit here with this little silly idea that He's had. You know what? Peter says, I'm going to give him a little bit better understanding. This is the plan. This is what it should be. We think things ought to be a lot different. We start telling God about it when it doesn't come out the way that we want. Right? Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep desiring His will. But it's not going to come out the way that you want unless you're lining up with God's will. At this time, in this confrontation, Peter is not lining up with his will. And just a few minutes ago, he was lining up with God's will because it was direct revelation. It would come to him. 
Rebuke is a really strong word. I want you to, to, to gather that. That's, that's a rebuke that Jesus will use when He has to rebuke. And whenever He rebukes Peter, that's how strong this is. He will do the same thing. Peter's not making questions. He's making statements. And, and if you were to put this in an uh, idiomatic way, it could be like this. May God grant you better than this. Whoa, this isn't going to happen and we're not going to allow it. (laughs) Now, we get Jesus turning around, seeing His disciples. He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man. Jesus said this. Peter was doing the same thing as Satan was to Jesus in the wilderness when he had the temptation. You remember that? And it's like you can bypass dying. You can bypass the cross. You can go straight to your majesty and people will see all your glory and you won't have to go through the cross. Oh, thank the Lord that Jesus didn't listen. This is why Jesus really had to rebuke him. That would keep us from getting our sins forgiven. He had one mind, one thought in his whole process and his plan, Jesus did, and that was to go to the cross. Did you know that there are many, and whenever I say many, I mean many, huge numbers of pastors who are bypassing the cross. They will not speak on substitutionary atonement where He takes our place, dies for our sins. They will not speak on propitiation where God was pleased and satisfied with what happened to Jesus on the cross as we had read earlier in in Isaiah chapter 53. God was satisfied. He was propitiated. Satisfied with the work that Jesus had done. Because this is the story that was made before the foundations of the world. And it came about. It happened. And he's saying to Peter, this is a serious thing. You're doing the work of Satan by saying that. Anybody who bypasses the cross or will hold back propitiation and hold back substitutionary atonement, hold back the offenses that mankind has before a holy and righteous God who we deserve to be struck by Him and sent to hell for eternity. And that's a mouthful right there. And if you said that in any kind of semi-liberal church, they would have you out of the pulpit in a moment. Because that is not what people want to hear. What is it that they want to hear? Well, they want to hear how they can make their life better. And some of these things are good. And yes, we should preach them because some of these things are biblical. But this is what they stress. Oh, family. We need, we need to teach about raising kids. Well, that is true. It is in here. That is right. Look at Proverbs and look at the New Testament. But that's what they will want to stress. They will talk about money management. The financial matters. And yes, we care about the financial matters, but that stuff is going to burn up. We've got to be teaching about the cross. Substitutionary atonement. Marriage. They say, we need to be always talking about marriage. Marriage, family, kids, finances. Get my needs met. All those things are important. Matter of fact, they're biblical, aren't they? 
But is that what we stress? You notice what I was really talking about? Me. It's about me. I want to get this served and this served where we see in the Gospels. It's all about who God is. When we're lining up with His will, seeking first the kingdom of God, then these things will be added unto you. You don't have to be dwelling on these things. You dwell on Him and His will, and His will will come about. Uh, A crossless Christianity, that's where the quote, church is at today. The cross is the heart of the matter. Did you see why when we started out today that this is the apex of the Gospel of Mark? Everything leading up to this is about this. And everything that flows out of this, that's where it's going. This is where it's at. The cross undermines self-righteousness, doesn't it? When we speak of the cross. We need to see and know the horrible condition of mankind. And if we believe that in our own selves, then we know that only the cross and by what He did and what He chose to do in bringing me into that is uh, the only way I can get out. By our nature, really, we don't have troubles with the Messiah. Jesus being Messiah, yes, He's the Messiah. And a lot of people go to church today who aren't even born again, but they go to church, they think they are, because they can say Jesus is Lord. But their lives have never changed. But they have expectations. They're there to get what they want, what they need. They're needy people, but they don't recognize the real need. They're in a desperate, terrible condition. And that is where the church is at today. To get my own needs met. It's not about me. And that's why Jesus rebuked Peter right there. Peter meant, well, oh, don't say you have to die. You know, really, Jesus, that's, that, that's not going to happen. You don't have to do that. Wow. And in Matthew, he uses the word stumbling block. In Matthew 16, you're a stumbling block. You're in the way. Peter, you're a hindrance. The real blow is this. Get out of my way, Satan. Because Satan is right there in that sense. He's thinking the thoughts of Satan. A very, I guess in a literal way, it's get out of my sight, Satan. Even though Peter is saying that, we know ultimately this is what Satan wants. To keep him from the cross. And yet at the same time, it seems like he uses people to get him to be killed. And yet, you know, Judas and such. But at the same time, if he could bypass the cross though and go right in, to that, then he doesn't die for the sins of his people. Oh, it's a bad idea for followers of Christ to play God. And when we start putting ourselves in the place of God, we end up putting ourselves in the place of who? The place of Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're an offense. You're a scandalon. Scandalon, the Greek word. Stumbling block. Uh, You're a trap. You're a baited trap. You are a Satan trap. You're a a Satan stumbling block. If you're trying to dissuade me, Jesus is saying, from the cross, you're on Satan's side. 
Peter didn't get it at that time, but it was man's interest rather than God's interest. That's what God's plan is, is what His interest is, that's what His will is. Well, it sounds so backwards, but that's God's will. A lot of times it is backwards from us because we are the ones who are backward. He is not. His plan is perfect, but it doesn't sound right to us. Man's interest. We need to get away from a man-centered gospel and focus it upon this great Messiah, Lord. You know what? True Christians get it. They get it. Peter got it. Peter got it. The Holy Spirit came. Church is born. You know what? In the book of Acts, you see it happen. And then we see Peter write about it, which we have been talking about. We just finished Peter uh, last Wednesday night, the book of 1 Peter. And it was it was quite a treat as we went through that. It shows the reality of the the lives that we live and explains what's going on, what's happening. In 1 Peter 2.21, Peter writes this, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. He got it, didn't he? And then he later says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, so this is what we finished up with last week, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Remember that? After you go through suffering, Jesus suffered you too. And then here's a doxology that must have come from His own experience as He's inspired by the Spirit. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter needed to be perfected, confirmed, strengthened, established. Well, how did God do that? Same way that Christ did, only not to that point. It was a path of suffering that took him there. What we just said there, that really does it for most of the churches. Because now once you say God wills for you to suffer, as Peter says all throughout his book, I don't like to say it. My humanist just hates to say that. It was His will for me to suffer. It's His will for you to suffer. I'm not going around telling people that when they're going through a terrible time. But ultimately, we do need to know that. You know, We have to be compassionate, don't we? And we use wisdom and saying things at the right time. I don't need people to be telling me that sometimes when I'm going through a really rough thing. Sometimes maybe it is good to be banged over the head and be reminded... Well, the good news is Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God. Bad news? In fact, the good news, He's going to die. The good news, He's going to rise. The really good news is that good news is called the Gospel. And that we are despicable people. And Jesus died for our sins and made the payment, took it on Him, and He rose again for the salvation of all those who believe in Him. That is good news. That's the Gospel. And we have just hit the heart of the Gospel this morning. It's something we're all familiar with. It's not strange. It doesn't even sound weird at all, does it? But it took a while for them to get it. And when it happened, you know what happened? They went out. And that's what I'm asking us to do, to take that gospel to the people that need to hear it.
Let's pray. Father, this is why we're here to worship. Because of the glory of the Gospel. Confirm it to our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know what? That's a setup for our Lord's Supper.